Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Hill. Dr. Hill is one of the top peak performance coaches in the United States. He holds a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA's Department of Psychology and continues to do research on attention and cognitive performance. Dr. Hill is the founder of Peak Brain Institute and host of the Head First podcast with Dr. Hill. Dr. Hill is also the lead neuroscientist at True Brain and lectures at UCLA teaching courses in psychology and neuroscience. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Can you talk to me a little bit about your background, the work you do, and how you got into it? Sure. So um, I'm sort of a, a, a what I call a functional neuroscientist. Uh, by training, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, which means that the things that I think about are the sort of intersection of mind and brain uh, often. And cognoscientists will typically ask questions about how the, the mind or brain works relative to the to that intersection. Um, I, I've taken my work into more of a performance uh, coaching uh, area. So again, more of a functional or sort of, you know, pocket neuroscientist for you to help you understand and demystify your brain. Um, as part of that, I teach courses, as you say, in gerontology at UCLA, um, which is a mix of psychology and brain aging and healthy habits and things. And um, I also uh, own a series of companies called Peak Brain, which does uh, neurofeedback training Neurofeedback is biofeedback on the brain, and we also provide uh, meditation and mindfulness instruction uh, without charge. Um, but the uh, biofeedback and neurofeedback are the main things we do there, and that's towards getting people to have uh, access to taking control of brain health, performance, getting problems out of their way in terms of stress, sleep, attention, um, you know, even more major things from injuries or you know, other uh, stuff that is uh, a little more challenging. So we do a lot of work on the brain, essentially, to help you optimize your performance and get rid of symptoms, the same way you might with a high-end personal trainer, you know, tailor things to what you know your body needs in a workout. I have no clue what it means to get, I mean, very little idea about bio or neuro feedback on the brain. What does that process look like? Sure. So biofeedback is essentially measuring something inside the body and then training it, exercising it in some way. Neurofeedback is just biofeedback on the brain. Usually we mean brain waves or EEG, the electroencephalogram the, the brain makes. Sometimes we mean other things like blood flow. Um, but in general, we're measuring some brain process. And when you're doing uh, uh, EEG-based biofeedback or neurofeedback on the brain, you'll measure some parameter of the brain activity. And it's changing moment to moment. And so whenever it happens to change a little bit in the right direction, you applaud the brain with audio and visual input. And when it shifts in the wrong direction, you withhold the input. And by changing the goalposts over time, we sort of shape the activity. Uh, this is a form of operant conditioning and gently exercise the brain waves up or down in a specific direction. And then evaluate if that changed your performance or your subjective experience of attention, stress, sleep, et cetera, in a way that made sense. And then we gradually steer the resources of your brain. So subjectively the experience of, of training your brain using biofeedback is you come in, sit down in a nice comfy chair, look at a computer screen or a big TV, and wear two or three wires in your head, uh, five wires sometimes, and we measure some brain activity, and as it's changing, a game on the screen is changing. So a spaceship flies faster or slower, Pac-Man eats more dots or fewer dots, uh, a movie screen gets brighter or dimmer, uh, a car you're driving hits more zombies or crashes and stops running. So in all these cases, things you're doing uh, automatically, if you will, in your brain will drive an external stimulus, and the brain likes stimulus over a lack of stimulus. So if you kind of applaud the brain, good job, brain, with more stimulus, every time it happens to do something that you want it to do more of, you sort of teach it to move a little more in that direction. And then, so your experience is watching a game or an animation stop and start mostly for half an hour. That's kind of it. It's involuntary mostly, too. And then over the next day or two, your brain sort of got a sense of, hey, wait a minute, whenever I dropped the theta waves, I got more stuff happening during that half an hour. That's interesting. I like that. Let me, um, let me uh, you know, do more of the dropping my theta for the next day or two to figure out what that does and take control of it. And that's sort of the involuntary exercise um, uh, that happens. And then you report back as the client, oh, I noticed that my, my uh, sleep onset was different. My focus was different. And based on what you report, we adjust the protocols and exercise you 
differently. Um, we start the process with something called a brain map or a quantitative EEG such that we measure your brain activity at rest using a sort of full head cap and compare it to um, a database of several thousand people and see how unusual your brain is compared to uh, the average person your age. And so those bits of information get us a sense of you know, how your brain might best respond to exercise or what you might best need or where the biggest performance bottlenecks are. And then we reevaluate your, your brain and look at some executive function performance and other testing uh, over time and see how your things change. And we can usually get rid of big significant problems in a few months, uh, usually permanently with changing. What are some examples of problems that somebody might be able to get rid of? Well, um, the, the low-hanging fruit for neurofeedback include things like ADHD, sleep issues, anxiety. Um, most people get rid of their ADHD in three or four months. Uh, most sleep issues, most anxiety ends up being addressed. Um, seizures, the average effect is over 50% reduction. About 5 or 10% of people get more than, uh, get complete submission, uh, suppression for more than a year. Um, works pretty well on migraines as well for good long-term control. Um, but it takes some, some uh, ongoing training sometimes. But the permanent things that are quick usually are the regulatory features of sleep, attention, stress, maybe mood. Uh, if you have injuries, you know, post-concussive things, fog, fatigue, irritability, wear and tear, it, it often works quite well, but it takes, you know, more like six months minimum. Uh, we can work on things that are often developmental, like autism, but it takes at least six months, and the goals for success are often a bit different, you know, less rumination, better eye contact, less anxiety, better sensory integration, maybe a little language production when it's severe autism. Versus somebody with ADHD and anxiety and you know things that are getting in the way but they're functional, those things we'd expect to train away and to help them get control over those resources over time uh, in a way that is uh, you know permanent change versus a, a temporary change. Andrew, this sounds fucking crazy. Like uh, they should have this outside the grocery store. <laughs> they should. They should. And, you I know, just like and, the... and it was like, mm -hmm. you're preaching the choir, obviously. But this this was this was uh, invented 51 years ago. It was discovered on cats. So um, you know, basically, cats were being trained to raise a brainwave, and they their brains ended up being seizure resistant because of it. In another experiment, months later, so involuntary uh, effects on brain activity. Um, would would you know th this is not a placebo effect so to speak this is just exercising the brain and you can do it with uh you can do it with basically any resource you can measure and that's the form of neurofeedback or biofeedback so um over time you know you can dial in brain resources you want so you stop thinking about things like adhd uh um start thinking about stop thinking about things like adhd and anxiety and stuff as you know mental illness or stuck problems and start thinking about them as like a resource, you know, and a range of resources that you have control over and you can exercise and tune in and get a sense of, you know, uh, agency over. So that's really why we do what we do at Peak Brain is to give you control over that executive function, stress response, OCD, PTSD, Yeah, I was going to bring migraines. that up, PTSD. Like how, how does, how effective is it with PTSD? Extremely. Um, like, we have very, mean? very good, uh, uh, we usually eliminate it or, or at least knock the symptoms way back so much that there's a, a big lifestyle shift. Um, so we're a peak brain is one of the participants in a network of neurofeedback, uh, groups called the homecoming for veterans. And for instance, um, there's you know, a few hundred of us in this network, but the people who, who do this, uh, neurofeedback in this program pledge to give at least 20 sessions of training to. Uh, a veteran experiencing PTSD and blast injuries and or blast injuries um, without charge. And so we've been doing this for several years. We have multiple locations. We have about five uh, seats in this program, if you will, for free across all of our locations. And we typically do at least 40 sessions of training with everyone, which is three months of training. And a lot of these people that come back uh, with, with PTSD and blast injuries especially significant PTSD that's, you know, they can't sleep at night and they're having lots of intrusive thoughts and lots of severe stuff. I often get such a huge change in the first um, 15 to 20 sessions that I can't get these guys to come back to finish out the program. I mean, often, you know, they don't have a lot of resources or taking a bus to get to see me and they're just trying to get their lives back together. And often once the sleep is re-regulated, their stress is no longer in the way, they're sleeping great, they're taking jobs and, and moving on with their lives. And I can't get them to finish that's so effective. You know, um, so because they get such a huge effect in the first half of our program, um, 
and then I've worked with PTSD and, you know, children and non sort of warfighter trauma survivors and other kinds of um, things. And it seems to be just as effective where we can just help you dial down the, the, uh, the stuckness of that resource. Because in things like PTSD, we have to think about it as a, as again, not an illness, but as a um, learning gone awry. I mean, we have a, a thing in the back of the brain, the posterior cingulate, whose job it is to evaluate our attention and where we're directing it versus the environment and any threats versus our behavior and make sure that everything's safe, you know, and it's supposed to throw a flag on the play if it identifies that our behavior and our environment aren't uh, congruent. Like if we're driving and we stop watching the road, that sense of, ah, watch the road, that's the posterior cingulate raising its hand and saying, no, 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 you need to be doing something a bit more safe. And one of the features of PTSD is that natural healthy resource whose job it is to evaluate and help you keep safe, getting really irritated, getting really active all the time, you know, be sort of your, your, your mental state becomes your back to the, to the wall versus your back to the door. You know, you have to scan, evaluate. And then if it gets really bad, the possible sources of threat or the historical sources of threat end up becoming sort of recurrently activated and they break through and they, and they mess with sleep and they mess with attention management and memory and a bunch of other stuff. So if you can take the natural resource that's gotten kind of out of whack and help you unstick it, I mean, I don't want to get rid of someone's stress response. You know, if you're being chased by a tiger, be stressed. That's exactly the right thing to do. But we have the ability as creative, intelligent, amazing humans <clears throat> to think about what could go wrong, especially if we've learned through repetitive high stimulus experience that things often do uh, go wrong, or at least they're not uh, predictable or aren't safe. The brain learns to become an extra strong evaluator of that safety. So if you see in the case of like a brain map, uh, the posterior cingulate is a couple standard deviations uh, more active than average, and the person, uh, now, don't get me wrong, the brain mapping is not a diagnostic process. I can't say, oh, X is true. I can say X is likely. So the PTSD marker I would guess at is if your posterior cingulate, your, your back midline is really active, has a lot of beta waves, a couple of standard deviations more than average, then I would say, you know, this pattern often shows up when people are ruminating, with some intrusive thoughts, they're stressed, they're, they're worrying at a problem like a dog with a bone. Is that true for you? Oh, it is. Okay, this is probably it. Great, we found it. Sorry you're experiencing that, but we found it. Let's go after it. And then we can exercise that stuck beta down because every time, it's not, it's not a, a fixed uh, resource in your brain. It's about, it's changing moment to moment. Whenever it dips in activity or softens a, a touch, you know, the alpha waves come up, the beta waves back there drop. Whenever that happens for half a second, applaud the brain with beautiful music. And when it moves in the other direction towards more hypervigilance, more stuckness, make the music go away. And if you do that, you will sort of dial down the reactivity of that circuit over time and become a stable change. And it's still there. You can still get stressed if you need to, but you aren't stuck in that mode anymore. So it's a different approach than uh, a drug approach, which would just kind of blanket you with a different level of arousal, so to speak, you know, down-regulate everything at once. So, What's actually happening chemically in the brain? Because I was like, I mean, this is your field, not mine. Um, I'm like, is it dopamine being released? Is there like new neural pathway? Like what's causing the beta waves to increase or decrease? And, and how, why is it permanent? Yeah. Or, so more, can, or more permanent? Yeah. You, you, you can think about um, brain waves as like little fire, like little CPUs. We've got a couple, you know, million of these little CPUs, uh, clusters of cells called uh, columns. They're micro columns or mini columns. Uh, or two names for them, which are actually the same thing. One is the size, one is the electricity scale. But um, these, these little columns are basically CPUs in the brain, and we've got a bunch of them, and there's something like 30,000 neurons and probably twice that in support cells, glial cells and other computational cells, in each of these little columns. And when these columns fire, when there's a, a spike of electrical activity, a, a, a action potential, we call it, i.e., electricity zipping down the wire of the neuron, the axon, is a signal. Um, when these, these micro-column cells fire, they tend to fire all at once as a unified electrical field. And they are taking in inputs from other columns that are right next to them and other columns that are far, far away. And those assemblies of CPUs will briefly come together to do certain tasks based on where the you know, resources and tissue are, what it's doing and then let go of their networks and join new networks to, to do new tasks. How rapidly these little groups of cells fire is the frequency of the brainwave. They fire twice a second, we call it a delta wave. 
and likely you're making lots of delta when you're deeply asleep. And if I fire 10 times a second, we call that an alpha wave, which is an idling kind of resting frequency where the tissue isn't doing very much. And beta frequencies are usually like 12 to, let's say, 40 hertz or 40 uh, cycles per second or firings per second. And so the tissue tends to downregulate and upregulate, especially tissue that's very specific, like visual tissue in the back of the head or these evaluators, the posterior cingulate in the back midline, the anterior cingulate in the front midline. These tissues tend to regulate up and down to do a specific task, like the evaluation thing I mentioned in the back midline. And so you can see a really gross activation of these columns with a lot of beta frequencies coming up in amplitude, the amount of beta, meaning the amount of those columns that are firing rapidly versus the amount that are firing slowly, you know, staying idle in alpha. And so moment to moment, these things change and let go of neighbors and recruit neighboring tissue to do the same thing they're doing and, you know, adjust a little bit. And so whenever they dip um, in the right direction, meaning alpha comes up a touch or beta goes down a touch, you then provide through the eyes and ears an audio visual stimulus, as I was describing, the brain likes stimulus. So it starts to realize within a few moments, hey, wait a minute, whenever I drop my extra beta and the alpha comes up, stuff happens. I like stuff. Hey, wait, why am I getting stuff? Cool, stuff is cool. That's a cool musical note. That's a cool little movement on that screen. Hey, wait, that's me. And I'm saying this as if I'm the brain because the mind does not have an experience of one little tiny feature of a billion things being measured and driving a stimulus in the outside world. But the brain can bind to that signal and pick it up within minutes. The brain's figured out, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Whenever I drop my theta or beta, that's happening out there in the world. That's kind of cool. And so just like it's a pencil, the brain's trying to map the tool or the stimulus onto the brain and try to figure out how to take control of it. And so it starts to play with it a little bit and it notices that when it changes further, the, the game changes further, the stimulus changes further. And so the, the reward, the stimulus happening when the brain expects it. Ooh, I think if I drop my theta or I raise my beta or whatever, the, the, the spaceship flies faster. The brain thinks that may happen. It tries it. It happens. And when the brain gets a positive reinforcer, oh, that's more stimulus, cool. That produces a rush of dopamine. The dopamine is a learning signal, i.e., this is important, this is interesting, this is, this is necessary. And that tells the brain what's important to keep learning and keep doing. So the reward, the applause, if you will, of the audio and visual is keeping the brain learning. You know, it's the good job, brain, yeah, keep learning kind of, kind of thing in the brain. And the thing that we're actually exercising which circuit in the brain, which frequency, is the direction of change. Oh, let's, you know, oh, you're stuck in this way, you have this resource that isn't quite focused enough, or this one is too driven, or this one is slow or fast. When you measure those things, they vary, and so you, you tune the resource up and down. Initially, you tune it in a matter of minutes, and it happens instantly. Uh, subjectively, you often feel it a few sessions in, not right away, but usually three, four sessions in, everyone feels it. Um, sensitive people feel it right away. People with concussions often feel it right away because it can be dramatic, but usually it's a few sessions in. And then it's this gentle effect of the brain trying to figure out what the heck we're asking it to do in each half hour session and a subtle unfolding of that exercise, that involuntary operant conditioning exercise um, because of the slight dopamine reward for the slight shifts in brain activity that, the, that, that you were making happen. You're only providing the stimulus, only providing the applause or the dopamine when the brain did what you wanted it to do. And we withhold the applause when the brain doesn't do that and gradually move the goalposts and shape the activity. So you can think this is um, much closer to Skinner's pigeons being shaped to peck in a certain way. You know, pigeons already peck. Skinner trained them to peck four times by first giving them a pellet of food when they pecked once and then twice. And then eventually he had a complex behavior shaped up. Um, in contrast, Pavlov taught dogs to salivate when a bell rang, you know, two things that aren't normally as associated. This is not that. We are not Pavlovianly conditioning you, you know. We are exercising or shaping resources that you identify as targets up or down. And we're doing that from the science backing of, oh, here's what we think is the best thing to go after or some resource bottlenecks or some things that track with your subjective experience or goals. But it's this very kind of gradual exercise process. And eventually, <clears throat> the brain is, has a different set of resources. You know, it, it takes weeks. And so you get initial effects right away, but often you need a minimum of five or six weeks of training for any permanent change. And we do a minimum of three or four months, typically, for a permanent change. So I do 40 sessions in three months for most people. 
that is some permanence for almost everyone and it addresses most of people's gross needs in things like attention, stress, and sleep management for almost everyone, uh, like 95% of people or something. Um, so it's a process, but eventually you have new resources humming along and the brain then practices it all by itself. I mean, if you have nice biceps, you don't think when you reach for the heavy thing on the floor, ooh, got to activate the left bicep. You just pick up the heavy thing on the floor. And by saying the same token, if you're going to sleep every night, if you're managing your attention in your boardroom or your creativity class or your, you know, whatever it is, or being less OCD or less PTSD day to day, then your brain practices that good regulation and it gets reinforced all by itself. So it becomes permanent, so to speak, over time. I have a couple of questions. One, you said 40 sessions and each session's a half hour? Yeah, roughly. And how many micro experiences are, would you estimate are within each session? Micro experience, like micro experience, meaning like the brain is activated and there's a stimulus. Mm. So we're providing re rewards. We're sort of saying, yeah, good job, brain. Little little burst of stimulus. Um, depending on how we do it, between um, several hundred and a couple of thousand times in uh, half an hour. No more than once every half second is the max way that I train, and uh, we end up getting. Um, typically a couple thousand reward events where the brain has resumed its movement in the right direction or stayed moving in the right direction and a beep or a stimulus or something onsets or occurs. It's at least a couple thousand times. Uh, most of the, the way we do it uh, for half an hour. A couple thousand times. And, and how many sessions do you think you have before somebody starts to, if you were to put this on a curve, you start to see, uh, begin to sort of really start to scale up um, the changes? Yeah, so um, we remap the brain and remeasure the attention uh, at the beginning and then every 20 sessions minimum. And I find that 20 sessions, I often get about a standard deviation, or not quite, maybe 25 sessions is where a standard deviation of change will occur. What I mean by that is on a population level, you know, you can move away from extreme Z-scores in attention performance and stress response in, um, in, in, in assessed, measured resources like an attention test, as well as on your brain. Uh, and so people start to feel it between three to five sessions in almost everyone. So by the end of the second week, uh, around six or seven weeks, we've hit 20 sessions and you've been feeling it, you know, for the past couple of months, well, the past month at least and reporting what's in, we've been trying new things and steering it. So we usually get, um, close to a standard deviation of change at that point when we remap your brain. So take your severe ADHD and knock it way back, take your severe anxiety or sleep issue or you know, whatever it is and have a nice big impact. And then we reassess and fine tune and readjust and try more things for another 20 sessions, reassess the brain, get another standard deviation or close to it for many people. So they're literally having tens of thousands of iterative experiences. Yes. Tens of thousands over. I mean, you're going to have a couple thousand in the first session. Um, and then the brain's going to learn from that. So it, it's hard to explain, but there's this, this is effect that comes from many people, especially for things like ADHD or anxiety where your way of regulating those resources has been a little bit uh, maybe strained or a little bit stuck in one mode for your whole life or for years. And as you start to get that resource un, uh, unstuck and a little more flexible and more built up, we often get um, uh, a really nice experience sort of out of the chair right away. Like within five or six sessions, let's say your, your ADHD is really starting to shift and that means that you walk around, and I would say for maybe 10, 20, 30% of people, it's hard to spot, but um, people report something we, we call the windshield wiper fairy, where for the first time, your executive function is actually sort of purely under your control here and there, and then you, you notice this sort of laser-like, clear, calm, crisp focus. Or you've been dealing with rumination for years because of mild OCD or something, and then uh, it unlocks, it unclenches for the first time or you get triggered and you know, you're waiting for your migraine to show up and it doesn't. You know? So people are having these experiences of, of, uh, out of the training environment within the first couple of weeks sometimes if they're sensitive, definitely by the end of the first month, things are starting to really shift in terms of uh, the other resources. And people start to feel a little different in the chair after you know, three to five sessions and that usually means they're feeling a touch of focus or calmness or fatigue or something else like that when they are training and they're feeling a little like like you work out and you feel a little shift from your, your workout physically same thing happens in neurofeedback you exercise your brain and then for uh, a little like hour or two you feel a tiny bit alert a tiny bit kind of 
wiped out, and then you shrug off the effects of the workout, and you notice what happened. Is my sleep better? Is my attention better? Where's my stress response? Am I a better listener? Am I more creative? And you report in the subtle shifts. We get a sense of what's happening subjectively, push you harder or not as hard or try some new things, and then go back to the science every 20 sessions to make sure we don't just think we know what's happening because people have a really nuanced understanding of what their internal environment is and give us lots of subjective language about what's happening, which is great, but we have to wed that with the science to actually get them effects they're looking for. And so over time, we um, want to uh, you know, really change the, um, the brain. And, and so we go back to the brain frequently and find out what's happening. A couple questions come up. Um, the first one is, do you also work with people who are in depression? I do, and I have successfully, and neurofeedback works quite well for depression. Um, not as well uh, as every intervention, but better, better than many. Um, the, uh, from a, from a, a clinical versus treatment or training perspective, Peak Brain as a company doesn't work with depression because we're really trying to take neurofeedback into um, uh, the fitness and performance realm. And so while you know, somebody comes in and says, oh, hey, I have some you know, stress response things and some sleep issues and some depression, we'll probably say things like, great, let's help you work on your brain broadly. Oh, some depression? Well, we know we can probably support that, but who else is on your team because we're not you know, psychologists or clinicians? Um, I mean, everyone else in the field of neurofeedback pretty much is. There's 5,000 people in the U.S., 10,000, I would guess, worldwide, and 99% of them are therapists of some stripe. Um, I would say half or more master's level, master's level therapists, um, you know, with, with some, some neurofeedback training. Uh, and the way they approach neurofeedback, often with very, a great deal of, you know, skilled, gifted approach, um, they still approach it from a therapeutic perspective, checking in therapeutically and sort of in, in a talk way frequently and uh, treating it from that lens. We're really trying to take the neuroscience and make it accessible the same way you would go and train your body and assess your body. You should be doing the same thing for your brain from our, from our perspective. So while I, we, we, we don't turn people away with depression, if there's significant depression, I would say things like, well, you know, this may, this, this probably will work. Here's some literature on it. And, um, you know, let's loop in whoever else is on your team in case we, you know, push you a little hard or destabilize things because that can happen. Can you talk about that? Yeah, well, it's kind of like being sore from the gym. You know, you work out too hard and you can't move your arms the next day. And, you know, it's pain, but it's not necessarily pain because you, in, you damaged yourself in a way that is bad. And in neurofeedback, there's a couple of ways that side effects show up. One is if you use the wrong protocol. You know, it's not adjusted for the person properly. It's too strong. It's too much training. It's, you know, a bunch of reasons why it doesn't work perfectly. And you may get a very subtle side effect a little bit, you know, wiped out, sleep's a little bit disrupted, you're on a long edge. It's very subtle. And then, ideally, you report that in. And we say, hey, you know, okay, great, and thanks for letting us know. And we adjust the protocol around what you're experiencing and back off any side effect, get your sleep back on track, your stress response back on track. If you ignore what's happening with the subtle side effects and keep training, you know, three, four times a week, and you end up training uh, for five, six, seven sessions, you will probably make that side effect more and more and more strong, and eventually it can become permanent, so to speak, itself. So if you train and get a negative effect and ignore it and keep going, you will train the brain into the wrong mode over time. And I've seen this happen with depression. I've seen this happen with autism, where severe worsening of symptoms were provoked by the wrong method. Um, so this is not a one-size-fits-all system. It's very uh, has to be carefully applied. So that's one thing I'll say. The other thing is, um, in terms of you know the side effect is you may actually just be a touch sore you may you may be working the resources out so you have to kind of figure out to what degree somebody is um, you know responding to the protocol well or not well and when we're talking about you know diagnosable things like 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 some depression while I know we can support the resources dramatically I don't understand completely it's not really the role I'm in to understand completely what the exercise on those resources, the soreness, so to speak, will do to your stability. So I'm going to try to be very cautious and gentle and support you if you have some depression, and not push very hard. But if, like, especially if you had, you know, a form of like bipolar depression, we would, um, you know, want to be very much have a clinician in the team. And things like bipolar depression, one of the core features of the brain stuff, is it's a little uh, unstable. It has a little bit of swinginess, tends to react strongly. 
And so I'm not too concerned if you say you have a little anxiety or some sleep issues and ADHD, because if we exercise you a little hard, the consequences are very mild to have a little extra anxiety or ADHD for a couple hours if we overtrain you or something. But if you have bipolar disease or major depression with suicidality and I push you hard and the next day you feel like crap because you're just worn out, the, the, the clinical consequence could be very high. So, you know, if there's a very significant clinical uh, 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 need, then I would always want somebody to come in as another team member. Like another example, schizophrenia. You can make massive changes in the brain in schizophrenia according to the research and other colleagues' reports using neurofeedback. But I wouldn't work on schizophrenia as a sort of concierge neuroscientist. I would really, you know, my, my, my goal is not to intervene at that acute level for you. It's to really help you work out the broad resources, which might mean you don't get anxiety or depression or, you know, things don't devolve long term the same way they might. But it's also not a role of um, doctor for you in spite of me having a PhD, you know. Dating coach Chris Thoney here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. I want to move sort of into the next question, and that's like I've never had uh, that I can remember had uh, my brain hooked up to three, four, <laughs> five wires to sort of see what my alpha or beta waves are doing. But like there are things that have happened where like I, I know my thoughts are racing, or I know that um, my emotions are activated i can feel them in my body i can feel like i'm feeling stressed and i can feel it in my arms or hands or my legs or i'm feeling happiness and it feels like my skin's tingling like I, there's definitely some type of and tell me if there isn't but it feels like there's some type of connection between what's happening in my brain and what i'm feeling and uh and what i'm thinking and so like i'm wondering is there if somebody ha doesn't have the ability to to walk into your office and put on some sensors in their brain and and uh like, is, is there a way that they could pay attention to, to their body to nurture uh, brain health? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you, I mean uh, in terms of paying attention to the body, uh, classic techniques are things like mindfulness and meditation. Um, if people aren't familiar with mindfulness, uh, to sort of corrupt um, a classic uh, definition, I think, by um, Jack Kornfield, I would, I would define mindfulness as uh, paying attention in a particular way uh, on purpose to the present moment, replacing a judgment with curiosity. So you try to lose that evaluator, so to speak, and just kind of be aware. Um, mindfulness or meditation more classically, which is just, you know, sort of forms of mindfulness with some different types of anchors around them. Uh, those are all wonderful things, and they all have profound benefits on executive function management specifically. Um, executive function has broad benefits for managing attention, but it also helps manage emotional tone and aging and a bunch of other things as it's worked out and built up. So these frontal resources of controlling how fast your brain works and how easily you can pump the brakes between thoughts and one thought to the next and you know from different stimuli you're experiencing have massive benefits. And the uh, uh, literature would suggest that, uh, at least from my read on it, doesn't seem to matter what form of meditation or mindfulness you're doing. It's kind of like exercise. The best form is the one that you do, you know, and, and do regularly. And with mindfulness or meditation, if you seem to do it for, uh, it looks like if you do it for 10 or 20 minutes a day, um, every day, you get the benefits that are touted in the literature and in the you know, ancient texts and things. And 
you know, when I combine neurofeedback and meditation and uh, forms of body biohacking and dialing in nutrition and nootropics and a bunch of other things, we get massive shifts and you can make massive changes in a very short amount of time. Um, a lot of that is involuntary, which is some, some of its draw, but meditation or mindfulness is one of these things that if you learn to do it and practice it, you start getting benefits in three to six weeks that are pretty significant. You start getting major benefits in three to six months, I mean major to the point where you can blunt ADHD, anxiety, sleep issues, really significantly offset aging profoundly, uh, do a few other things. Now, um, one note on anxiety and mindfulness or meditation is that if you have a pretty busy mind that is hard to direct and tends to pounce on you anyways, you know, it's the flavor of anxiety or dysregulated stress response you have, then meditation can be a little contraindicated because what you end up doing as you learn to do some meditation or mindfulness is just drop yourself into your stuff. And that's what you end up, you know, sort of hyper-focusing on. And so it can be a little bit problematic or to decide how to engage with it if you're, if one of the things you're dealing with is a stress response. Um, so as an alternative strategy, if your stress response is a little bit too dysregulated for mindfulness, uh, I would suggest you actually do things when you're stressed that load up your working memory. Uh, working memory is the RAM of your, or the scratch pad of your brain. Uh, sort of like the amount of things you can have on your open desktop and your computer is, is, your, is your working memory. It's, it's not really memory. It's more like the space in which you think and perceive. And so if you take something out of long-term memory and you remember it, you do so into working memory so you can experience it. You know, listening to uh, me speak right now, you're hearing it with your auditory cortex, but you're regist registering the, the experience of that stimulus in your working memory. Most humans can handle uh, seven-ish items, five to nine items in their working memory. And having one more item in your working memory is a huge intelligence boost. More importantly, controlling what comes in and out of your working memory is massively important for uh, self-control, intelligence, what you're thinking about. I mean, if you can hold seven things in your mind and reliably pay attention to them, and manipulate them with your mind, great. But if the you know person next to you coughing or a random thought or your stomach rumbling adds a ninth item to your brain and it kicks out other items and you can't control what comes in and out of your head, it's not very effective to, to have lots of stuff in your mind. So developing meditation will develop inhibitory tone and give you control over what comes in and out of working memory. But if you don't have that yet, you may just drop yourself into your stuff so loading that working memory resource up using things like um, directed attention on other tasks. Maybe you can't meditate, but you can hyper-focus on uh, you know, knitting or gaming or gardening. Or eventually, maybe you can do something like a dual NBAC cognitive test. There's plenty of dual NBAC tests online or games online that you can load up working memory by watching a tic-tac-toe grid and remembering what happened two trials ago for an audio stream of information and a visual stream of information separately. It's really, really taxing. And you can't actually be in the middle of an OCD rumination or a PTSD, you know, intrusive thoughts sort of storm if your working memory is fully loaded up by things like a dual end back task. So you can use it to like break up this really ruminative stuck working memory. You can also use it to build tone, I think, there and eventually get a little more control and then you can meditate and get some to the place of space between thoughts eventually instead of just dropping yourself into, um, you know, a higher stress response by sitting on the cushion, which, you don't, you know, wouldn't be ideal, obviously. One of the things that came up as you were talking, and I'm just curious how this connects or if it connects. I feel like it, there's some type of connection here. I noticed that, well, one, I feel like applications like Instagram do like the opposite, like um, in the sense that like in our normal life, we might be connected to, I don't know, three to five to 20 people on a regular basis. And suddenly we're connected to like a thousand, right? And um, whether it's having to remember those names or like these these images of what's happening in their life, or like it feels like it increases the stress response within my body. And uh, when I'm consuming too much social media or even when I'm consuming too much news. And uh, there was a period where I was reading lots of news and, and I, at some point as be, I became what I feel like is more conscious, I felt like, every time I'd read a news story, like it felt like it was an attack on my psyche. And so I started using applications that, that block these things. Even if I post on Instagram now, I literally delete the app afterwards. So I, I'm not looking to see 
like if anybody liked it, I don't really care. I'm doing it to share something. And then like maybe I might check it on my computer, but I don't want it on my phone because it's too readily accessible. And I, and so I'm curious, like I feel like there's like that cognitive, for me, it felt like cognitive overload. Like I was o- overload with stimuli and it started making me less effective in other places in my life, especially my, uh, when I wanted to focus, like I, I had a hard time reading a book and like, it wasn't until I cut this crap off that like, I started to develop the attention span again to to start reading for prolonged periods of time. As a researcher, is there sort of validation for what I'm experiencing or feeling? I mean, there's certainly validation for what you're experiencing or feeling. Um, I think many people would take it to the next level and say, oh, you know, doing video games, being on the internet, doing Instagram will create ADHD or make it worse or something. That's not true. Um, You know, the way we engage with high stimulus switching gears all the time that's learned, you know, and, and, and it learned it learns us into a high stimulus, short attention span mode that's hard to do deep processing. For some of us, that means we can't do things like read or even stay engaged with tasks. And for many of us, that ends up becoming a threat-driven or a fear-driven brain, too, you know, like like maybe you were describing. I mean, classic, you know, Buddhist uh, uh, literature, you know, Siddhartha would say, guard the sense gates of your mind. You know, it's important just to decide what comes in and out. And some of that's just the pure stimulus, like the Instagrams, but also some of it is the nature, like you know, like the news programs you were saying. If you're always seeing this crisis happen, that thing happened, um, these are not presented in neutral tones. They aren't presented dryly and calmly and with some facts, and they're not presented with with context to help you necessarily deal with it from your own perspective. They're they often have an agenda behind them. So you're dealing with highly charged, flooded things that whose job it is, the advertising and the news, you know, perspective and everything else, the job there is to, is to make you feel like it's in-group stuff. It's important to you because it's your group. You know, it's your, it's your identity. It's your, you know, be it the, the, the country or the sports ball team or the, you know, the, the particular status symbol of wealth, whatever it is that's attached to it between the, the horrible news you're getting is reinforcing that. And so there's a socialization of values, of crises, of what is important, of being threat-driven and fear-driven, um, that we're really reinforcing from a societal and sociological perspective. And if you consume mass media news all day long, you get socialized that the world is X, Y, and Z ways. Your what your your status is for beauty and for what relationships are, you know, uh, end up changing um, dramatically over time. So I think it's important to to guard the media you consume and think of the sources and the biases and the news outlets and minimize the flood of you know, loudspeaker-driven crisis headlines and clickbait, because like you say, it, it makes it where you can't deal, because you're actually dealing with the environment as if you're in a crisis, as if you're being chased by tigers. And, you know, TMZ doesn't need to add more tigers to your back, sorry. It, it just doesn't. Um, and if you find that you can't manage the stimuli you're engaging with, then it's, it's your responsibility to handle that and to change the uh, ways you're engaging with stimuli and to manage your stressors. Everyone needs some stress. A little bit's good. Um, a great deal, not so good. Moderate amount, wonderful for performance and for keeping you young and healthy and engaged. You know, life is hormetic. It's, a, it's, it's, the, it's the desirable difficulty that you thrive under. Uh, so you need some, but you don't necessarily need to be trained to engage the world in 20-second bites of information or a single Instagram picture. And you don't need to be trained that the world is a highly threatening place with massive amounts of stimulus coming at you all the time. You can know that cognitively as a human and take what you need out of that while not engaging with the, the fire hose of negative information to control some of the biases, some of the, the tendencies your brain may have towards keeping the resources biased towards where's the threat, where's the short-term thing, as opposed to the long calm, you know, good working memory, good long-term perspectives, good recall of memory. I mean, in a crisis, you can't remember anything. You're dealing with very short-term things and things that only last for a second or two at a time. But if you're always in crisis because of the flood of high stimulus crises coming at you, then it's very difficult to learn to manage the resources and bring things up when they want to come up. You know, you can't, it's like an athlete can't, you know, if you look at an athlete or, or, a, or a predator even, when they are getting ready to move, they don't do it from tension, they do it from relaxation. You can be much more effective if you leap into action from a pure relaxation than from already being tight. And that's true of your, of your stress response. It's much more effective if it's pretty chill until it's needed, you ramp it up to run away from tigers, then you ramp it right back down again. If you're always running away from tigers, 
tigers are going to get you because you're not going to be effective at marshalling resources for the necessary stress. Everything's, you know, full bore all the time and the regulation breaks down. One of the things I was thinking is there's lots of different ways we could stress our body and our mind and the importance of choosing what those stressors are. Yeah. Right. Like if yeah, you, and, and healthy stressors, you know? Yeah. Like I was thinking, well, math problems are going to stress your brain, right? Like, um, <laughs> yeah. like that's going to stress your brain and your, your, uh, but the outcome might be a little healthier than, uh, if you're doing something that is highly stressed, that isn't, isn't going to help a human being grow with an intention or a specific outcome that's going to better them. Yeah. I mean, the brain's, the brain changes, you know, shift happens. Its whole job is to change to some extent. And so it will change. Uh, to some extent, you can boost the changeability, the plasticity, simply by applying pressure. I mean, first-person shooter video games are not the most, uh, parents would argue, not the most um, you know, good use of the kid's time. And yet, they increase visual system plasticity dramatically. And so you had a kid with visual processing issues. You know, I'm going to make them do uh, first-person shooters at home, <laughs> you know, because it's going to actually help the thing he cares about. Uh, we often get flooded with resource demands that aren't necessary. It doesn't matter if a kid has a th- 10,000 friends on Instagram if they're 12 years old. You know, it doesn't matter, probably. Um, there's, there's, there's no, but, but they really feel that it does. And so you have to kind of help, help people as their kids and adults, as they're learning to engage with this new, new tech world, we have to be good, healthy tech consumers and smart consumers you know, um, even more so now with uh, media being a lot more biased and, you know, having lots of very high volume conflicting messages coming from different sides politically, we have to be very careful in terms of vetting sources and not taking in every bit of information as, as if it's real, you know, so. I wonder if you can briefly talk about um, three things. When you talked about a lot about the brain changing itself and you mentioned the word neuroplasticity, neuroplasticity, am I saying it right? Yeah, neuroplasticity. Our plasticity is just changeability. You know, the, the brain retains the ability to change uh, our, our whole life. Which is important because I remember when I was a kid, they were like, the brain is basically set after you're a certain age. Right. And I was told that too. And then I went back to, you know, college for a year, uh, took some classes to prepare for grad school and was like, oh, hey, wait, new neurons? I'll take some, you know, that's great. And then, I mean, at this point, every year we discover new sources of neurogenesis in the brain. So it's actually it's only happening probably at a few percentage points uh, compared to where it was when you were you know, 10 years old or five years old, but it's still happening all the time. So this is no longer a use it or, u- or lose it kind of situation. Now it's a use it or never get a chance to lose it. I mean, you actually can build more capacity. Um, there's several things that figure into plasticity and changeability in the brain tissue. One of those things is remapping existing connections and, and the brain moves its little receptors and connections around to touch other cells. And that happens rapidly and frequently. Um, you know, if you did a piano lesson, by the end of the day, the hand areas in the motor cortex would have moved every single connection around. You know, it's really rapid, and it starts happening in the order of minutes. And it's a it's short-term learning because they can move easily, but the receptors don't um, just move. They also become stronger when they touch certain places and fire on those places. They get better at firing on those places over time. So what what fires together wires together. So first you move the receptors, and then you start firing together in groups of cells and assemblies, and create these circuits that get better at being circuits. And that happens probably in the order of uh, weeks. And then you get new cells. So you get these neural progenitor cells that are created in several places in the brain, including the lateral ventricles around the hippocampus. And uh, we know there's some now on the outside of the brain as well. And these progenitor cells turn into the kind of neural tissue they need to be. They take five weeks to do it, and they travel to the place in the brain where they need to be along the way and ideally make connections, neurotrophic factors, BDNF and other growth factors in the brain, make connections with other circuits and neurons, and making those connections and and integrating themselves into a useful place, so to speak, determines whether or not that cell is gonna survive the journey. In fact, only half of the cells that we are making get used, get incorporated, and get given friends to play with, and neurotrophic factors and actually survive. The other half are resorbed and, you know, recycled and not used. So we actually have excess capacity in new tissue. We also have nearly infinite ability to reorganize the existing tissue into new circuits. You know, every every year or two, there's a case where someone wakes up from a coma with like 10% of their brain tissue left or 5%. And the brain tissue has reorganized its connections into a much higher 
level order of complexity. And the residual brain tissue is doing massively uh, a good job at, at making up for any lost brain tissue where you find someone comes in with a headache and it turns out they have one hemisphere, you know, and no one knows. Because the brain can reorganize the density of its connections quite easily. And under some circumstances, this is amazing what it can do. So there's really no limit to what your brain can do. It's not a question of, you know, being satisfied with this limit or knowing your brain. It's actually, well, let me take this stuff uh, over and decide how these resources should be developed, how they should unfold at any age. I mean, I have elders coming in at 70, 80s, and some of them have the fastest changes that I've ever seen. And some of the four-year-olds and five-year-olds do too. You know, it doesn't seem to be a function of age so much. It seems to be a function of us dialing in the right exercise for your particular uh, brain, essentially. So, but yes, plasticity happens, shift happens your whole life. It's always happening. You have the responsibility to actually maximize it and, and take control of it. It's awesome. Uh, I think it's going to provide a lot of hope for people who are listening to this who feel like their brain might not be functioning the way that they, they want to. Um, and, and the two other terms that I wanted you to define, you've mentioned multiple times, nootropics, and then you mentioned biohacking. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about both of those. Sure. I mean, biohacking is ancient. No, it's just, it's, it's everything from like weighing ourselves to watching our macronutrients and diet to nowadays dialing in supplements and, you know, smart drugs and things. And you can do lots of stuff here. Everything from, again, watching macronutrients and doing paleo or keto or primal diets, which are quite brain healthy and a lot of biohackers or people taking control of their health in this way, um, will adopt. Um, meditation or feedback, or I would call them biohacks. And, and these broadly are things I would put in the category of nootropics. And nootropics are things that help the brain, help aging, help cognition with, with no side effects or no appreciable or unmanageable side effects. And so it, you don't put things in this category like caffeine or modafinil or other smart drugs or Adderall. You do put things in this category like amino acids and tyrosine for the dopamine support and some of the, the early nootropic drugs that have no side effects or have very few side effects like paracetam and oxyracetam and a few others. And, uh, the, you know, you have to dial in over time the strategy for yourself, of course, but my advice is to stay away from things that use the term nootropic as a marketing label, i.e. there's side effects attached to them, and only use things that are, you know, vitamins, supplements, things like that, because you can really dial in benefits without any side effect. And if you want to get deep on this stuff, you know, real sort of good biohackers will do their genetics and see what their methylation status is of their genes and dial in the specific forms of B vitamins to help their neurotransmitter turnover happen better. So you can really dial in different things, or maybe see a functional medicine doc and figure out that you have some gluten insensitivity genetically, and so you should, you know, adjust your diet there. But the biohacking perspective is about taking control of the body as if it's just something else that you're managing, like a computer you're hacking on. Oh, I have uh, gut health issues and sleep issues, and you know, uh, uh, problems with you know blood clotting or problems with ADHD or whatever. Well, great, you know, that's good to know. And you can go after those things and address them and minimize the impact, maximize the resiliency of the system and take control of it. Biohacking and to some extent this thing called quantified self is about getting the data to help demystify what's happening. And so from our perspective, that's brain mapping and attention testing largely. If somebody is interested in, in doing genetic tests to figure out like what is uh, or do whatever test they want to do to figure out whether or not they can optimize um, their biology or do this biohacking, do they contact a functional medicine? Someone yeah, who does functional medicine? Yeah, a functional medicine like, doc will do it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So will even, if you go to 23andMe and get your report from them, you can download the raw data and then upload it to several services online. They'll do a methylation analysis for you. So this is getting more accessible and you know, even 23andMe, while not perfect, is decent data you can sort of get. Um, so that's a really easy way. If you already have your 23andMe data, if you don't, Go see your functional medicine doc and have them do, you know, all the genetics for you and organic acids and figure out what you're metabolizing well and what you probably aren't. And they can dial it in that way. Who would so be, those are great biohacking sort of things. Who would be your choice if you were doing it? Like where, where, what direction would you go? Well, I mean, I've done both. So I have 23andMe data. I've, I've, I've done my methylation analysis. I've also talked to a personal functional medicine doc I have who, you know, did a really broad screening of a bunch of things and helped me understand you know, like, for instance, I don't metabolize sulfur well, which is why I am mildly allergic to onions. It's why I've hated them my whole life. Now I know I can tell my parents they should never have fed me onions, so, you know. <laughs> so, like, it helps you understand, put things in context a lot of the time um, uh, and help you understand where your strengths and weaknesses are, for instance, you know. Um, 
So uh, I, I would do both. I would do a, a, a cheap and easy genetic screen using a service like 23andMe, knowing it's not perfect, just to have access to my raw data and then start using third-party tools to play around with it, um, as well as going to see a true professional who can help you understand some of the you know, uh, uh, deeper things that are happening over time. I know we're getting close towards the end of the time, so I want to ask my last couple of questions. One is, for the services that you provide, like who is your ideal customer? Like who should reach out to you? Yeah, only people with brains. We only work with you if you have a brain. Um, honestly, if, if your brain isn't doing what you want it to do, especially in the gross things like sleep, stress, mood, attention, it's perfect to go after and with neurofeedback. It'll probably help a great deal. So I, I would love if you gave me a steady stream of people with mild ADHD or severe ADHD, anxiety, sleep issues, you know, being burnt out, concussions, lots of just general things we deal with as people and humans are the things we tend to work most effectively on. So if you want to change, if your brain isn't doing what you want it to do, period, you become a good candidate for neurofeedback just to assess and start to take control of that of those resources. Is this something that someone's got to be in LA for? Is this uh, is there geo constraints? Is there is this something insurance covers? Is it something that um, like what's a normal cost for something like this? Sure, insurance does not usually cover it. Some therapists will bill through insurance, but only get mild, you know coverage of the sessions they do. Most people charge therapy fees for it, you know, $100, $150 a session. And you need, you know, 40, 50, 60 sessions sometimes. Brain mapping often costs $1,000 or so. Um, peak brain's prices are about half of average because we're trying to be a gym. We aren't doing therapy. So we charge about $4,000 for a program, which is uh, three months long, 40 sessions, at least three sets of brain maps. Um, but that's a real good chunk of, of effect as well. So it knocks back most of the uh, symptoms for many people. Um, insurance doesn't cover it, uh, as I said, um, but again, you can often get a little bit of coverage or reimbursement sometimes, uh, both from therapists that do it as well as, you know, we, we do super bills and things people can chase if they have great insurance, sometimes they get money back, but it's just not well covered. Insurance are in the job of, you know, keeping the money in their pockets, not giving it to you. So they're, this is something they can say no about. And so they usually do, even though the research backing is finally there for its specificity and efficacy, it's absolutely there. Um, in terms of local stuff, you know, we have five offices, four of which in Southern California and then one in St. Louis. And then uh, a lot of clients come to one of our big offices, the St. Louis office, or the Culver City office, for a few days and spend some time getting assessed and learning how to do the basic stuff. And we send you home with your own neurofeedback equipment and then work with you for the first three months to dial in protocols and get most of the big effects. And then you're training on your own, hopefully, to get more effects and you're welcome back for brain mapping without any charge in the future. So a lot of our clients will do this sort of self-training, especially the, the high performers, you know, Ben Greenfield and other athletes and celebrities and things we have. We'll do a lot of, you know, intense training, but they'll be on the road and they'll, or they'll be at home and they'll be in the middle of the woods or somewhere. And Ben grabs his system out of his back and, you know, stops in the middle of bow hunting to, like, train his brain and puts it away and continues to stalk through the mountains. You know, he's kind of crazy that way. <laughs> but, but people do that or a mom in, you know, middle of uh, uh, the wilderness in a, in a small town will be doing it for four kids or something and with our support. So we can do that with you if you do if you come to one of our offices for a couple of days uh, at the beginning of that process. We can then support you long term uh, uh, on your own, so to speak. Any last insights, words of wisdom for people who want to enhance their minds and perform at their highest levels? Yeah, the only thing I'll say is that you know don't be satisfied if it's not performing where you want it to be. If your stress response, your tension, your sleep, you know, the gross things like that are really changeable over time. It's not a zero sum game. The brain can absolutely change. And so you can get control over ADHD and eliminate it over time. You can manage anxiety and you can get more creativity. You can do all kinds of interesting things. So don't think of your brain as this mysterious thing that's getting in your way. And don't think of it as like, oh, it's my fault. I mean, if you have ADHD or anxiety, people often feel like it's their fault. But it's, you know, would you feel like it's your fault if your shoulder's broken or torn or has an old, old scar tissue? You just kind of take care of it. So, you know, the agency here is the important thing that you actually do have control over your stress response, attention management, seizures, migraines, sleep issues, OCD, PTSD, those things all really change. So, you know, take heart and take control over the process. Dr. Andrew Hill, this has been fucking awesome. Uh, thank you so oh, much. For you <laughs> thanks for, so much time, for taking the time to chat with me. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And if you're listening to this, you want to learn more about everything that Dr. Hill's doing, we're going to post some links on the Craft Charisma website and within the description of this podcast so you can find out about him and his work more easily. Thank you again. Of course, my pleasure. Nice speaking with you. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.